Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing, and very often those writers have been recommended to me by people who have previously been on the show, except in the case of rejoinders, and if I change my mind. This is a rejoinder episode. We are playing host once again to David Leo Rice, this time joined by Chris Kelso, because the two of them co-edited a new book called Children of the New Flesh, which is about and inspired by the films of David Cronenberg. Uh, For all of you who are returning, thanks for being patient, because I didn't do episodes in June because we were busy having a baby and I decided to focus on that. But I'm back, and thanks for sticking around. Chris Kelso is an award-winning, multi-translated writer. His short fiction, essays, and art have appeared in numerous magazines, while his longer-form prose and poetry has been published by an array of international presses. David Leo Rice is the author of the novels Angel House, The New House, and The Dodge City Trilogy. His story collection Drifter was named one of the best books of 2021 in the Southwest Review and Locus Magazine, and his next collection, The Squimbop Condition, will be out in 2023. He lives in NYC and is online at ravidice.com. Before we get into the interview, and I'm not saying this just because we had a kid, if you want to financially support the show, you can do so in a couple of ways. You can buy my book. It's called Tired. It's on Amazon. You can become a monthly subscriber at patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. You can toss me a couple bucks over on PayPal at paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe. Or you can just, and this isn't financial, but you can just throw a five-star review on whatever podcatcher you're using to listen to this, and hopefully it will encourage the algorithm to show it to other people. Now, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Chris and David. I think the first question is going to end up being, how did the project start? I'll probably take this because although um, David has, you know, it's as much his project as it is mine, as it is, you know, the contributors. Um, I think I, I, I took the, the sort of this very vague idea to David. But I, I think that like some people are always searching for the surrogate fathers, but I, I think I'm always just trying to find a therapist. Mm. Uh, and I think during lockdown, I was very depressed and I think because of COVID I think we all experienced that kind of you know acute death anxiety or mortality salience and realized that everything was temporary and even the the structures in society that we, we took to be quite robust in fact could you know disintegrate or fall through our fingers at any given moment so we all felt like we were not objects of primary value in the universe and I was always drawn to the theme of the physical revolt of the body and disease and trauma, but I all suddenly felt really quite tangible and near. So I was looking for therapy from a rational mind, and Cronenberg's uh, and always dealt with these subjects in very rational clinical terms. And because I've never lived through a war or great hardship, uh, the way other generations people have, I'm kind of suddenly forced to spar with my own mortality and the delusion that somehow I'm going to keep going on no matter what. And he's someone who could, who could kind of help with this, with this process, and I wanted to explore that anxiety, that pervasive fear that had infected and destabilized the cables of the collective psyche, so that you know, could try to make something useful out of it. And art is a useful place to to work these things out, like on a canvas or through the fog of fear, until something positive comes out of it. So I had this vague motivation and vague concept of a book that centered on David Cronenberg, but for it to really work. And they did a like a 
central thesis. And I was reading David Leo Rice's work a year before. So I'd read The Hate Room and Drifter and The Pod Me Trinity as well. And I've read more since then, but that was my kind of my gateway. Um, and I, I knew there was something in him that identified with Cronenberg the same way I did. That he was maybe a therapist for him as well. So in true Cronenbergian fashion, the, the patients put their heads together to create a shrine to the psychologist, I suppose. Hmm. Yeah, that, that absolutely that sense of hybridization or you know twins or doubles is really crucial to Cronenberg. You know, I mean, Dead Ringers is is the most uh, direct point of comparison, but I think all of the films are these hybrid states, whether it's like a person in a machine, a person in an insect two people with each other, a person and an idea, uh, you know, on and on and on, a person and a disease, certainly. Um, so I think that sense of like Chris and I hybridizing together and sort of creating like a foster family, you know, the idea of, of Cronenberg as this father figure and us wanting to call the book, you know, maybe this was the central thesis, like wanting to call the book children of the new flesh, you know, not just, you know, the new flesh it seemed really important. You know, and it felt really important to me too, thinking about generations and sort of the transition from someone's early life to their mature life or some, you know, especially with an artist. Because I think if you think about the timeline, you know, Cronenberg's early life, which is really what this book focuses on, was before our time. You know, if we're millennials, you know, born in the 80s and 90s. Cronenberg's early work was really the 60s and 70s. But then when we were born, like I really identify with Cronenberg as almost a kind of literal father in the sense that, you know, I was born in 86, which is really his absolute heyday, right? You have Videodrome, The Brood, The Fly, Dead Ringers, um, The Dead Zone, all of those movies are coming out throughout the 80s, basically, going up to Naked Lunch, which I think is like 91 or so. Um, so the idea that, you know, I feel as though I emerged through this portal or channel that you know both Cronenberg and David Lynch being sort of the two Davids who dominated the 80s in that way were these like not just influences but like Chris said kind of father figures and then I think if you fast forward through to now you know the pandemic felt, felt like this new kind of portal phase and then I think both Chris and I in terms of you know moving into our 30s moving into fatherhood in, in different ways or at different stages of the process. But we also, I think, felt like maybe we were leaving our early life behind and entering our middle life. So to sort of look at Cronenberg doing that process, I think was instructive to us hmm. and hopefully entered the book in an interesting way. It was a kind of thesis of the book of like, how do you make that phase shift, which is horrible, you know, in a way, because you are moving toward death. But there's something beautiful about it too, if you become cognizant of it and really, you know, embrace it and that sort of, how you come most fully to life. Hmm. Oh, one of the things that has, has sprung into my mind, and I, I think, Chris, you saying it this way um, helped me formulate the idea that's sort of been in my mind, especially when I read, uh, David, your, like, nonfiction. There's something therapist-esque to it. Like... I don't often read somebody writing about what's happening in the modern day, paying attention to, you know, the weird rise of fascism and, and all the other exciting times that we get to live through. Um, 
from from a period of of clear opposition but without um i don't know the clear rage there's something like clinical about how you describe what's going on um that the more i i dig into the anthology the more i sort of feel like cronenberg also does with his theming right like i haven't seen i don't think any of the of his six earliest pieces that you've decided to cover in the book um and it's been a real like smattering for me um as i've tried to like fill in my cinematic gaps in my knowledge um but it does seem like there's something about his work too i recently rewatched the new crimes of the future and like there's a lot of ecological themes and and um i mean gender is is kind of tied into body horror and things like that but there's like not this sort of fury to him that you might expect with the subject matter that he covers um from like the standpoint that he covers right like he seems very much on our side but he's not as like you know raised fist as a bread tuber might be or something like that yeah i, I mean in terms of the idea of you know you could call it clinical or you could just call it accepting of the present not in the sense of resignation or of you know quietism or if like i'm accepting that nothing can be done about anything but accepting of the present as the present you, you know what i mean and that there's a way in which i think both sides in any kind of political struggle become reactionary against each other and the more that they do that they become mirrors of each other and each just one-ups what the other does which just elevates the temperature and doesn't seem productive like it's sort of um actually to use a uh, naked lunch quote, it like exterminates rational thought. It makes it impossible for people to think clearly. And I think part of the value of being an artist, which in Cronenberg's world is kind of the same as being a scientist, right? Or a surgeon or a doctor is someone who stands outside of the fray and tries to just look at what's going on with a benevolent goal. I mean, of wanting to help cure something or wanting to come up with an intervention that might work. But in order to do that, you have to not just be like gnashing your teeth and pulling your hair out, you know, and there's some like the concept that, that I use in this book is the idea of the heroic pervert mm -hmm. and the heroic pervert. It's almost like the Christ story of Christ saying, you know, I wish I didn't have to drink what's in this cup. Right. I wish it could pass me by. But if it can't, like, OK, I'll drink it. You know, I'm good. whatever it is, I'll, I'll you know, if that's my fate, I'll take it. Mm -hmm. And that idea, I think, is really powerful. Right. It's like taking in whatever's in the present and not claiming to like it but also not saying, uh, I wish there were a way I could avoid this when there isn't, right? So like accepting the present as it is yeah. becomes perverse and, and actually kind of radical in a way that it, I think is heroic. Yeah, I really like the, I was thinking about your introductory essay, The Long Live the Heroic Pervert, and you describe the heroic pervert as somebody who embodies both the high priest and the sacrificial lamb. And I think that's a really a really good way of putting it, as someone who has the bravery and authority to sort of succumb to a third alternative, basically, and, you know, can distort or corrupt the original or set course of things. Cronenberg mm -hmm. uh, is, is the embodiment of the video age, and he's been thinking about this stuff for decades, and it is just a return to that, that idea. It's like the return of the father to the homestead, 
and the kids can't quite forge a meaningful path, so it's up to the kind of wizened patriarch to cast some light on things and deliver some home truths. And he, he is intrepid. You know, he's like he's like Charles Lindbergh or one of those kind of old-fashioned adventurers. He's he's fearless, and as David was saying, he relishes a, a period of unrest or flux because he knows that something meaningful can be extracted from it. And he is entirely non-judgmental. He rarely makes ethical statements in his films. And it does seem only fitting that Cronenberg would re-emerge in 2022 when things are at their most uncertain and chaotic and when we need answers the most. And I, I think I think as well, he kind of regards the, think about the media or external technological world as a virus or a disease, but he searches for a, an ironic arousal or self-obliteration or potential technology-possessed suicide. And, the idea that paranoia and fear could be sentient entities that seize control of the human mind, I think, is really interesting. And that our certainty about where we begin and end has never been very certain. That it's always a fiction to say, you know, I'm on this side of the screen and it, whether it's the news or whether it's another person or whether it's advertising or whatever, is on the other side of the screen. You know, he's always about breaking those boundaries, right? Or saying, you know, the infection is always already in you, and your desire to avoid the infection might actually be weaker or more superficial than your desire to catch the infection. You know, that there's something deep in us that seeks it out. You know, which we were thinking a lot about, of course, during this whole, you know, international virus era. Um, you know, and I think also like something else that, that Chris just said is like the ethics of Cronenberg to me are always about the films rather than in the films, right? Like the films don't make an ethical statement in the sense of saying this is good or this is bad or people should be like this or they shouldn't be like that. But what they do say is art is a worthwhile way of thinking about the world, right? That it's a kind of meta question, which to me is where the real ethics are and any ethics that are in a work of art very quickly become propaganda, even if it's for something you agree with, right? I'd rather see a film that you know, is really interrogating something and really asking hard questions or really uh, arriving at a point of like profound uncertainty than I would see a film that espouses something, even if I agree with it, right? I don't get anything out of that experience in the same way. Yeah, it becomes only only cathartic, you know, with maybe the extreme successes actually getting you to get up and go do something. Um, but... Oftentimes that's something that anything calls you to do is, is kind of nebulous anyway. You know, there's not, not a lot of films that are like, go join your local mutual aid association. Um, and uh, yeah, one of the other things that really struck me uh, as a theme throughout the anthology is this idea of him moving from a very heady literary avant-garde into schlocky b-movie ooey gooey body horror um and how at the same time he doesn't really lose um the core of what it is he's doing right he's not selling out when he's starting to make these films that have i don't i don't know does the did the fly have a wide appeal when it came out I, it's hard for me to say i haven't looked at like it was it was a remake right yeah you it was a remake of a quite popular um, schlocky horror film that probably had, you know, a, a built-in audience or admirers that were there already. But 
uh, he he turned it into something completely different. So yeah. you're probably right that you know the it would quickly alienate that that built-in audience probably. Yeah, I I just think that there's something interesting. Um, for for me as a person who who very much enjoys the heady experimental stuff and then also straight up genre fiction and and in my own writing am kind of pulled in both directions um to have someone like Cronenberg sort of laid uh in this light that's like you can actually kind of marry these two things um which is just it's you know it's kind of freeing to be like oh okay yes you're right i can do this it doesn't all have to be two guys sitting in a field at a table until something weird happens it can be far out wild stuff too because i mean again like the the new crimes of the future is a very quiet movie but it's with the exception of the first 15 minutes sort of has a has a mass appeal that anyone who's seen Titan or um i don't know any any kind of a 24 horror movie in the past couple of years is going to like it it's another hybrid too you know between art and commerce or between high and low culture or between certainly between literature and film that's a big thing right of him starting out as someone really with a more literary bent you know and i think he's still kind of a writer at heart you know he's not someone whose relation to cinema is like purely visual the way you know, we might say of Kurosawa or Tarkovsky or, you know, th- those those directors were writers too, but there's something fundamentally cinematic about their vision, whereas Cronenberg's really is heady. I mean, it's sort of why it lends itself to discussion so much. Like, it's full of ideas in a way that certain other films are great, but they're just not idea-rich in the same way. And, and something about this transition, which is really like the transition from the 60s to the 80s, that I found really interesting is, you know, I think we tend to have the narrative that at least on the sort of frustrated factions of of the left, whatever that means today, that the 60s was a kind of utopian era that failed or that was thwarted or that ate itself, you know, and then it went through this dark kind of desert of the 70s and, you know, it's very cynical, paranoid time. And then it turned into like Reagan and, and Thatcher and just, you know, all commerce all the time, no welfare, no, so, you know, no such thing as society, that whole thing of the 80s. Uh, which is seen as a negative thing, and I think is negative in a lot of ways. But part of what's interesting about Cronenberg is that he actually thrived most during that time, right? And he's someone who didn't ignore it. This kind of is why I think he's a perfect heroic pervert, that he didn't ignore it. And I also don't think he exploited it in a cynical way, but he did have his antennae up in such a way that he was able to turn the weird energies of that time, which was kind of like the pre-internet also, right? Like sort of leading up to you know, the Microsoft 90s, right, and AOL and all that, uh, he turned that feeling in the 80s into something really beautiful artistically and also commercially. That he, you know, like The Fly, uh, he was able to make actually relatively big budget films with big movie stars, unlike what, what he was doing in the 60s and 70s um, in a way that was really special and that I think the 80s required, right, or he required the 80s. And that hybrid you know, the idea of this sort of Beckett influence, like 60s intellectual turning into an 80s, you know, creature feature monster guy without losing what made him great. That's part of what is so special about him and what I think is so enviable or like what I think so many artists today hope they could do something like that for themselves. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. I, I think as well, I think it's because he is a he is a true, that's what makes him a true auteur as well. You know, he's, and if, if we could, I mean, the, if we think about the book as well, and the early films are an access point to talk about the broader impact to his work, because that felt like an untapped, largely unexplored period of the director's career, but also the themes or preoccupations are still present, even in the early work. And you can see that he's pioneered by people like Samuel, or, you know, you could tell that he's, he's influenced by people like Samuel Beckett and all these kind of, you know, in Kafka and Burroughs. And, but there's also a, a equally strong, like, you know, French New Wave influence, like Truffaut and Godard. And Cronenberg certainly seems to fit the profile of an artist intellectual. And all those guys were writers first, then directors. So they've made they've made a similar transition, and he's sort of uh, glommed onto you know that kind of a similar idea. So he's someone who perceives themselves as having true creative authority, and who would put success and well-being of their own artistic temperament above all else. Yeah, the writer first thing is interesting to me. A lot of two two of my favorite directors, David Lynch and Peter Greenaway, were painters first. And you can tell, um, especially with Greenaway, I think. Um, but there's definitely a difference in how they go about their films and their ability, especially with David Lynch, like his ability or inability to sort of mesh with the times, right? David, David Lynch is kind of singular in that he's managed to survive and only ever do david lynch I, I suppose elephant man and dune you could call outliers at the beginning of his career that pushed him into only doing david lynch and whether or not the culture has decided to accept that um has sort of been inconsequential to him um the the writer first thing is is interesting because i can't i guess i don't know how many other filmmakers i can think of who are like really writer first type of people like maybe um, Quentin Tarantino, but he's he definitely seems like a script writer first, not necessarily a novelist first. Yeah, or, or Charlie Kaufman, right? But but those are people mm -hmm. who uh, I think Roger Ebert had a great line about Charlie Kaufman, where he said he's one of the only great writers whose medium happens to be screenplays. Mm. You know, maybe Tarantino too, although he's perhaps one level. He's a kind of four star versus Kaufman, I would say as a five star writer, right? But like someone sure. like Cronenberg is, is a real like prose fiction person in a, maybe not totally unique, but in a very special way that I, that I think makes his films what they are, even though they are, I mean, the, the visual element is really crucial. And I think it is something that we track in the book and, and that you just see if you watch the progression of the very earliest films and how they move into the earliest of his more well-known like middle films is that they do develop an increasingly sophisticated visual language and they become less like filmed plays, which, which I think the very earliest shorts kind of feel like, but there's always still a sense that they're really about something, you know, in a way that uh, if you think of Eraserhead or something, you know, there are ideas in it, but it would be hard to express them on paper, right? There are ideas that just exist visually and, and um, sonically. That's another thing right. about Lynch, right? In mm -hmm. terms of sound, you know, he's a musician too. Whereas Cronenberg is really a thinker, which is why he's so worthy of thinking about, especially by writers. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there, there are some filmmakers in the book, but it's mostly a book of writers, which I think is not a coincidence. Yeah. 
So let's talk about the construction of the book. Um, there's a mix of essays and prose pieces and and some more experimental works. There's illustrations. Um, and then you guys sort of lead in each segment when we start to see writing about each of the different films you guys lead it in so how how did you come to that structure for the book um so again this is when when i had to pitch to david leo rice first before uh we we pitched to 11 11 and i i wanted to have something to show him and all i really knew was that i wanted to write about the early films of David Cronenberg because it felt like a it felt like a niche or something that hadn't been explored. So I sent you know kind of very brief introductions and, and he just added to them. And then when we started to receive submissions and uh, we we had conversations about the films themselves and we just we just started to kind of come up with these wee introductory, um, just introductions to the to the films and to the essays and to the fiction, and. It really has been pretty seamless. I must. I don't know how David feels about it, but it, it it felt very seamless. I mean, the conversations were there was no disagreements. It felt very natural and organic. And he would send a bit of writing. I mean, we wrote a we wrote an essay at the end, kind of an outro to the, the anthology as well. And it felt it felt very very seamless. The the collaboration. So it was just a case of you know why don't we do this? Why don't you add to this? Okay, and then you know. We would go and do it, and 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 we were doing the final edits. You know, we we sort of fine tuned and refined things, and and that's the the structure you see today. But I think as well, we also wanted to be a, a presence throughout the anthology. It's, it is obviously about the films, and it's about the work and the essays, and the you know the work that the contributors have have put in. But um, to have your name in the front of a book, I think you need to be you need to be uh, ever present or omnipresent throughout. I think. Yeah, and I think, you know, that idea, it was almost like we were trying to put Cronenberg's theory into practice and to see, like, could we function as a hybrid? Mm. You know, or could it really, like Chris said, you know, could our names be on the cover in a way that felt meaningful, not just that it was by each of us, but that in some way it really was by both of us and that we were coming up with ideas that were different from what we would have come up with on our own. And I think actually, you know, relative to the just cultural tension and, and sort of confusion and climate of this moment, it felt really useful to say, like, is it possible to have these kinds of hybrids at a time when like everyone seems to be polarizing, right? Or everyone's, you know, separating themselves into smaller and smaller groups and ostracizing more and more people from that group, no matter where you look, you know, and uh, resisting dialogue and resisting cooperation more and more from the most like uh, basic level all the way up to the most extreme level. We wanted to say, you know, is it possible to try to do the exact opposite of like really collaborating and really existing in this, you know, heterogeneous and even sort of, um, you know, mixed and like contaminated space to, to use a Cronenbergian term, but have clarity of purpose and actually achieve something, you know, and not be like uh, uh, the thing from Dr. Doolittle of like that two headed animal that like tries to walk in both directions at once, you know, to not do that. <laughs> Yeah, there's there, there's something I don't know useful for me about it. Um, I don't read a ton of anthologies. I'm I'm not really an anthology sort of guy. Um, 
it's it's hard for me to be sold on an anthology because it's like I'm gonna pay book price for maybe a short story that I like. I like I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, and so, I mean, the fact that every single writer who's on the book who I'm you know who I previously know going into it as a writer I really admire their work is super is an easy sell for me too but I I like the idea too that you guys are like a glue that holds everything together and it's not just here's 15 stories by people who really like David Cronenberg um it's it's a much more I mean I guess you kind of said it like it's, it's a very purpose-driven book too which is something that I admire I think I think we were reacting to the to the the environment as well and the you know the, the the current climate because I think we've all seen changes in like media consumption driven pe- people adapting you know to new circumstances and utilizing media to help them navigate through this new way of life um, and you think this is obviously in the wake of COVID and many people either unable to go to work or working from home and on top of this you know leisure time's been spent at home and hospitality and non-essential retail sectors are forced to close and there's a big surge in downloads of apps that facilitate remote working and visual socializing and there was this big mass acclimation happening and for me as someone who loves to consume art as well the world is becoming oversaturated to the point of coercion and it's clear that the old way of logging off and on is ending and there's a new period of total immersion or total experience that's beginning and it's, it's as if the media world or entity wants us to leave this world behind and it's, it's pleading with us to envelop ourselves in the pure pleasure of relentless content so the the virus was a, i mean it was going that way anyway but the virus was a kind of tipping point so i, I personally i felt like whatever was going to whatever's going was going to be extracted had had to be purposeful and i'm not saying this this is a book that's going to change the world or whatever but I do think some of the some of the themes that are explored, um, and some of the writing that was produced is, you know, very kind of emblematic of the collective consciousness or something. Yeah, and I think in a way, like you can model the way that you hope a reader would think about it by just yourself thinking about it that way. Right. So I agree that, you know, there maybe are a lot of anthologies that feel like a periodical, right? Or it feels like, well, this, you know, it's just a, it's a grab bag of a bunch of stuff that maybe has some things in it you want to look at. And then it's like, you know, going to end up in a pile somewhere, you know, which is okay if that's what it's pitched as. But we sort of wanted to present something that was boiled down or that was like, you know, we've really thought about this, which at least means we can vouch for it being worth thinking about. You know, and if other people want to think about it, that's up to them. But we can at least say that we've done that. You know, we we think it's worth thinking about. And and I think something else, you know, to build off what Chris Chris was saying is another really important hybrid is between the past and the present. And in terms of film, between like film as an actual thing, whether it's going to the cinema or renting a video, which is how most of us relate to Cronenberg, I think, versus film as just this kind of diffuse gas you know or stream as as we put it um and, and i think here again this seems like another way of trying to mediate between different sides in the culture because i think you have one side that's you know maybe the more corporate side saying like just forget the past is over just you know drift into the cloud and you know never 
make contact with like you know the ground again and then you have this other very reactionary side that the way that it talks about making contact with the ground can be very violent and kind of kind of sinister and so i think there's sort of a question of saying well can we find something that's neither of those options and say like it is important to retain the past and to think about you know why did we love these videos in this way or like why is it maybe still important to actually go to the movies or to actually meet people or to actually you know have children and raise your children you know to do these things that like connect us to human history without saying that the future is either necessarily a bad thing although that that's an argument but most deeply to say, you know, we have to accept the future as inevitable because it just, it, one way or another, it is. So fighting against it feels like a losing battle. But I think the question that we were thinking about in one way in this book is like, can you bring some important things from the past into the future in a way that's not just nostalgia, but that's actually using something from them that's generative? And that's why, again, we wanted it to be children of the new flesh. Like, can this actually sire a new generation? Thank you.